On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show. And we are in need of your support. If you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week, please support us on Patreon at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show. And you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check. All that information is there. But please, please support us. I want to thank our supporters on Patreon so much. And for those who are already supporting, if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up, we need the support. Patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground show.org. Thank you. From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. From Palestine to France to D.C. to California, settler violence is on the march and the people are fighting back. We speak to journalist John Jeter. This tectonic shift in the world order from west to east, that's what's happening. China is rising along with Russia and the BRICS countries. The United States is trying to hold on by hook or by crook. and People are dying in this process. The Poor People's Campaign Moral Congress reminds the nation that poverty equals death. And while protesting in support of the journalist Julian Assange, the co-founder of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream is arrested outside the Department of Justice. Julian Assange has been in jail, in maximum security jail, in solitary confinement for four years because of his efforts to let me know what my government is doing in my name and with my money. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. First, some headlines. The Biden administration might ship dangerous cluster bombs to Ukraine for use in the proxy war against Russia. The New York Times reports that the U.S. is considering shipping the package bombs because Ukraine is losing in its current counteroffensive and running out of munitions. According to the Arms Control Association, cluster munitions, quote, disperse hundreds or even thousands of tiny but deadly bomblets. Their use produces significant quantities of unexploded submunitions that can maim, injure, or, or kill civilians and friendly forces during and long after a conflict, end quote. News about the U.S. possibly sending cluster bombs, which are banned by most U.S. allies, marks the latest escalation in the war, coming on the heels of the U.K. announcing that it was sending depleted uranium shells to Ukraine, and Russia accusing the regime in Kiev of blowing up a key dam and targeting the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. As more Palestinians are killed, wounded, and see their communities destroyed by the Israeli government and armed settlers, organizations are pressuring the Biden administration to ensure that, quote, not a single dollar of the $4 billion sent annually to Israel, end quote, is used to fund human rights crimes against Palestinians. The 72 organizations sent a letter dated July 5th to President Joe Biden 
and Secretary of State Antony Blinken, calling for protecting Palestinians, including many American citizens, in the illegally occupied territory and holding Israel's government accountable for its crimes. In addition to Israel's attack on the Jenin refugee camp, resulting in at least 10 deaths, there have been more violent attacks by armed Israeli settlers on the Palestinian villages of Al-Luba Ash-Sharkia and Tormus Aya in the occupied West Bank. The letter compared these attacks to what was described as a pogrom on the Palestinian town of Huwara earlier this year in February. In D.C., a lawsuit was filed against the district for sending armed D.C. police officers as first responders to the scene of mental health crises. Bread for the City, a local nonprofit, filed with the D.C. American Civil Liberties Union, arguing that D.C.'s current approach to emergency response services violates the Americans with Disabilities Act by denying people with mental health disabilities effective and equal access to emergency care care that is otherwise provided when someone calls 911 for a medical emergency. Instead of being met by trained medical mental health clinicians, the suit argues, most often individuals in crises are met by armed police, putting them in further physical danger and exacerbating their mental health emergency. And finally, Ben Cohen, co-founder of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, and Jody Evans, founder of Code Pink Women for Peace, were arrested Thursday, July 6th by Homeland Security officers as they sat in front of the Department of Justice headquarters in Washington, D.C. to to protest for the release of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who has been held in solitary confinement for four years in the Belmarsh Prison in London for exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. More from their protest after headlines. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. things change, and unless we change them, freedom of the press is going up in smoke. And so now I'm going to light, uh, I'm going to light this Bill of Rights in four places. One for each year that Assange has been held in solitary confinement. Here's the thing. 
There's no democracy without freedom of the press. Because the press is the only thing that can hold government accountable. And there's no freedom of the press as long as Assange is being prosecuted. We have no choice but to save Assange, save freedom of the press. Now I'm going to go and talk to the Department of Justice about that. Guys, come on over here. Come on. We're very large. <laughs> it's hard to get value. Uh, but you don't have I, an appointment, so you're not going to get it. Please don't bother the service here. Excuse me, sir. I want. You cannot block the entry. You cannot block the entry of the, the federal building. Sir. The the Department of Justice is criminalizing freedom of the press. I have to stop it. We all have to stop it. You have to stop it. Or else it's not a democracy a anymore. You, sir, and you're not getting in here. And I'm not interested in what you're saying at all. Well, I can't get by you. No, sir, you I'm cannot. I'm going to sit down right here. So, yes, we have to have freedom of the press for peace. What did Julian Assange publish? He published the collateral murder video of Chelsea Manning. Chelsea, a private in the military that wanted to expose the violence of war. If the people do not know the costs of war, how can they be working for peace? War is violent and kills innocent people. I started in the peace movement in the 60s when we saw children being napalmed. He's a publisher that wants to show us the cost of war, so we are enraged and work for peace. Instead, the costs of war are denied us. Instead, he's imprisoned and silenced. We cannot silence the truth. The first casualty of war is the truth. Without publishers that will publish the truth, we are all lost and in the fire of war. If this stands, if the U.S. is allowed to continue this prosecution, the precedent that it sets is that the U.S. can arrest any journalist of any nationality in any country around the world if they print something that the U.S. doesn't like. I mean, that is exactly the opposite of freedom of the press. And you can't go around saying journalism is not a crime and prosecute a publisher for telling the truth. Is there any suggestion, do you think, that the administration is rethinking their position on this? I haven't seen any suggestion. There it is, going up in smoke, freedom of the press. <laughs> oh, sorry. Hi. Hi, sir. Thirteen, fifteen hours. I have to advise you that you're blocking entrance to a federal facility, which is against the law. You need to uh, remove yourself from the facility, sir. All right. I have to give you three warnings, and after the third warning, if you refuse to leave the entrance, uh, you'll be taken into custody. So. Then why are you willing to go to jail for this? 
you know, Julian Assange has been in jail, in maximum security jail, in solitary confinement for four years because of his efforts to let me know what my government is doing in my name and with my money. So yeah, if Julian can be there for four years, I mean, which is torture, I could be willing to go to jail to support him and to support <coughs> our right to freedom of the press, which has gone up in smoke. And how much contact have you had with Julian Assange? Excuse me, I'm sorry, excuse me. How you doing, sir? Again, Inspector Cooper, Federal Protective Service, letting you know that you're in violation of D.C. law, blocking the entrance to a federal building. Uh, this is your second warning. Uh, you need to get uh, remove yourself from this area and remove yourself from the entrance. Is that clear? Okay. It's clear. Okay. I will remain here to protest the Department of Justice acting in an unjust fashion. All right. You realize I don't work for the Department of Justice, so there's nothing that, that I can really say as far as how they run their facilities or their operations as far as entrance or whatnot. But uh, they did deny you entry. They made that clear, and you are in violation of blocking the entrance. I'll come back in about five minutes, and uh, after the third warning, if you don't comply, you'll be taken into custody. I understand. Thank you for treating me with respect. Thank you. All right. Okay, are you all going to vacate the property? No, sir. I need to verbalize? No, sir. Okay, at this time, you're both under arrest for unlawful entry. So what I need you to do, and I understand that you're going to be... nice if they would let us I don't work for the Department of Justice. So what I want to do is you said you were going to be compliant with the arrest process. So if I could, can I get you to stand up, please? Ma'am, can I get you to stand up, please? Well, can you get her? I'll get him. Okay. All right. Grab this guy. Huh? Grab this guy. Put him in the top. Who's got the cuffs? Release. Is that good, sir? Don't you tight? You can't do that. Sorry. Would well, this officer going to be taking you that way? Got her? 
storm. Free joy in the storm. For peace, for justice, for the people, for a future. It's a crime what the United States is doing to him. It's torture. It's an international crime. It has to stop. Again, that was Ben Cohen, co-founder of Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream, and Jody Evans, co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace, being arrested Thursday, July 6, 2023, in front of the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. They were protesting for the release of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and that he not be extradited to the United States and tried for doing his job as a journalist, exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Thank you to Fort Fisher of News to Share for his coverage. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And now I'm joined by our media critic, John Jeter, two-time Pulitzer finalist and co-host of the new show, Black-Owned Conversations on Pacifica Radio. As a matter of fact, on WPFW, Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C., on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. and on the archives for those who don't hear it live. Welcome back to the show, John. I'm thrilled, as always, to be with you, Esther. Well, the pleasure is all ours. We're very lucky to have you on the show. But I tell you, this is a very troubling week in so many ways. Uh, So many images of basically settler violence. Settler violence, uh, violence from the settler colonial project happening all over the world. And the... the remains of that, the residue of that, or it's happening in in real time, you know, right before our our eyes. So many people here in this country, in the United States, they saw on their social media threads or in news reports, images of these California sheriffs slamming down. I don't want to say, I wouldn't say like a, a black woman who is looks to be either middle-aged or an elder slamming her to the ground and by her head. And then I suppose pepper spraying her and handcuffing her down on the ground. And, you know, it elicited the, 
the kinds of responses that we're we're used to now. You know, we're seeing this type of uh, police violence, police terror against the black community, and I was really conscious when I saw those those images that this is what's happening all over the all over the world. You know, we have the ongoing protests in France over the the murder of a 17-year-old boy. Yes, yeah, 17-year-old boy, Nahel. There's the more than I think 10 people killed in Palestine uh, after these horrific attacks by you know, the apartheid regime of Israel on the refugee camp of Janine. When you think about that, the people in Janine, they're already refugees. They're already displaced from their homes and experiencing violence. And then I have to tie this into President Joe Biden nominated Elliot Abrams to a bipartisan United States Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. Now, Elliot Abrams is basically a war criminal. Yes. And he served under the under the Reagan administration and also under the George W. Bush administration. But he is most known for his notoriety. His criminality comes from, most of it comes from his connection to the horrible El Mozate massacre in El Salvador in the 1980s. And during that massacre, men, women, children were killed by U.S. trained forces in this village, El Mozate. And at the time, Abrams actually praised the death squads doing this murdering and disputed the death toll. And later in 1991, he pled guilty for lying to Congress about the Iran-Contra affair, but then he was pardoned by George H.W. Bush. So we talked about the settler project, the violence of, the, of settler colonialism, but this week seemed to bring it all together in full force. And it was, it was pretty, it's pretty devastating. Yeah. The Abrams appointment, it reminds me, I, I just, the first thing I thought was, well, I, I guess Henry Kissinger is maxed out, right? So they had to get the, the next youngest war criminal to do this, you know, El Mazzotti, the massacre at El Mazzotti in El Salvador. Uh, it was an entire village uh, in El Salvador that was massacred by uh, these death squads and uh, Elliot Abrams, uh, not only defended it, but covered up for these, this massacre, which was ultimately uncovered by two journalists in the United States. Mark Danner was one. I can't remember the other. And one of the most beautiful stories I've ever read, most most poignant newspaper stories I've ever read, or, or, or journalism, piece of journalism I've ever read in The New Yorker, Mark Danner's piece on the massacre at El Mazzotti. But it is tied together by the White Settler Project sort of reaching the end of its rope and trying to maintain control over the darker skinned people who built the white settler project via the indigenous tribes that that tri- that village in El Salvador was mostly indigenous people all indigenous people I do believe and of course you know we see what's happening in Israel where it's an attack on the Palestinians a refugee camp at that I mean you know the I was I was really happy to see a story that I read I think it was in common dreams where they referred to Israel Israel's occupation as the illegal occupation, because that's what it is. It's illegal and immoral. It is a violation of all international norms. And so I think it's important to really think to think of these things as part of a whole. What happened in France, what happened in LA, it's all part of a whole of the White Settler Project trying to maintain control when they're facing a political crisis that was caused by 
an economic crisis, which we can trace back to the Great Recession, housing collapse, which again uh, was a result of, of uh, predatory loans given disproportionately to black people and brown people. And so it really is this uh, racial capitalist system, which we might call colonization, that's reaching its end. It can't exploit people anymore. It's almost eating itself. And so it's coming to an end, you know, but it's uh, I, like my African friends say, you know, it's the, the last kicks of a dying meal. And and that can hurt. You know, those last kicks can be painful. And I think that's what's, what we're going to see It's going to be painful going forward. You have people who don't want to give up power, who don't want to accept any form of democracy and certainly don't want to give back everything they've stolen. So we're in for a very, very difficult time ahead. I hope that after that, though, we see an American spring or a Western spring. And finally, we see uh, the people who built the Western colonial society begin to get what they are owed. Now, I know we often talk about news organizations, news as it's covered, and there was definitely a news-related story happening this week also um, with the birthday of Julian Assange, the imprisoned founder of WikiLeaks. There was a demonstration outside the Department of Justice, and uh, Ben Cohen of Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream and Jody Evans of Code Pink, they were arrested after participating in this action where uh, Ben Cohen kind of symbolically uh, lit on fire a placard that said freedom of the press. So let's listen to a little bit of him outside the Department of Justice. And then in toward the latter part of the, the audio, you'll hear him go over to try to go into the Department of Justice, and then he is stopped by a, what people can't see on the on the audio, of course, a very large black security guard, African-American man or, or black man. And that was a very meaningful shot for me, very moving image for me. I you want cannot it. block the entry. You cannot block the entry of the, the federal building. The, the Department of Justice is criminalizing freedom of the press. I have to stop it. We all have to stop it. You have to stop it. Or else it's not a democracy I anymore. You, sir, and you're not getting in here. And I'm not interested in what you're saying at all. Well, I can't get by you. No, sir, you I'm cannot. I'm going to sit down right here. Okay, so at that point, he sits down in front of the security guard, and he's joined by Jody Evans of Code Pink, and then they are arrested later. You know, they're booked, and then they they are released, and um, there's a picture of them showing, I guess, their their papers when they were released. So it was just coming on the heels of all the other the violence, police violence. Uh, military apartheid violence, genocide in Palestine, the appointment of this person, Elliot Abrams, who committed genocide and was responsible for this massacre. And when you think about the fact that Julian Assange, what is he in jail for? What is he in being prison for? For revealing U.S. war crimes of another massacre, right? Of the, of the so-called collateral murder video when, when the U.S. military was just mowing down people in Iraq journalists, like, children. Like it was a video game. Yeah, like it was a video game. Right. And so that was kind of topping off the week for me yeah. in terms of thinking about 
you know, this violence, thinking about the role of uh, news organizations and the fact that much of the violence against people of color, indigenous people, black, brown people around the world is normalized and it's, it's made invisible. We're still coming off that week when the you know, the, you know, tragic deaths of the, the billionaire in the submersible and his, his passengers received so much more coverage than the hundreds of people who perished in the Mediterranean that week because the European uh, countries allowed them to basically drown to, yeah. to basically to have for their ship to their boat, their ship to do basically sink and drown, you know, hundreds of people. So I want to get to your final thoughts about this week, these stories, and just thinking of them as, as a journalist. Yeah. yeah, I truly believe that Julian Assange, along with perhaps Mumia Abu-Jamal, are the two finest living journalists in the English language. And I think it's very telling that both of them are political prisoners. Both of them are locked up. Uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal for murder he almost certainly did not commit. And Assange for, like you said, uncovering war crimes. He is a threat to the empire, a threat to the white settler project. Nothing good has come from our invasion of uh, Iraq. And Julian Assange was the messenger for that, letting people know what was going on. And that means he's a threat. And so it really does tie together this theme of the white settler project reaching its end. Um, no one left to exploit, really, and people are starting to fight back. You know, I thought the, the video from France was just amazing. And then the commitment of, of uh, uh, the woman from Code Pink and, and uh, the, the guy who owns Ben and Jerry's, I think that's the kind of thing that we need. We need more of. We need more people doing that, particularly people who have a, a platform, who have a name, who, to show that, you know, this is important. You know, we talk about Donald Trump, and I, I don't have any kind of sympathy for Donald Trump, but, you know, we've got much bigger fish to fry if you're an American. If you live anywhere in the West, if you live anywhere in the world, actually, we have much bigger fish to fry, which is this tectonic shift in the world order from West to East. That's what's happening. China is rising along with Russia and the BRICS countries. And the United States is trying to hold on by hook or by crook. And people are dying in this process. And I'll end with this, if I may. And I know I'm repeating myself. I, I know that I've, I've, I've invoked this film before, but it's just so appropriate. The movie is the French film La Haine or Hate which is often referred to as the uh, French do the right thing. And the refrain from the movie is that a man jumps from a, falls from a 20-story building. And as he passes each floor, he says, so good so far, so good so far. And the, the mantra is, you know, it doesn't matter how you fall. It only matters how you land, right? We're in free fall right now, the United States and the West. The collective West is in free fall right now. Germany is deindustrializing. France is uh, having all sorts of problems with the uh, immigrants from North Africa that they've let in and have not uh, extended full citizenship to. And so we really are in free fall, but it doesn't matter how you fall. It only matters how you land. And so that's what's coming up. That's what we should need to be. That's what we need to be working on, thinking about and trying to prevent a hard landing. But, you know, I want to explore in something you just said, because I was listening to another program kind of describe the relationship, the, you know, the, certainly the colonial and neo-colonial relationship that France has to places that it had plundered and had occupied and, you know, sold resources from for d decades, if not centuries. But uh, under the so-called, you know, French empire, the French version of colonialism, 
they tried to make all of those places part of France, right. <laughs> you know, that uh, they were supposedly part of France. But when those people immigrated to the France part of France in Europe, even if uh, they had children born there and then their children had children, they weren't really French. Is that what you're saying? Oh, that's exactly what I'm saying. They weren't integrated into French society in a way where they are are equal to, uh, shall we say, native-born French. That's exactly what happened. And, and I think one story sums it up, if I may, very quickly. Uh, I learned this only recently in the last few years. On Victory in Europe Day, May 8th, I think, of 1945, the Algerians who had fought so hard along with the French to defeat uh, fascism in Nazi Germany and in uh, Japan and the Axis powers, they fully anticipated that they would be freed from French colonialism. And the French, in response, murdered 35,000 Algerians. This is the history. This is the blood on their hands. And this is a story, you know, the numbers may differ, right? But this is a story that we can talk about throughout the collective West, right? I, you know, I quote him a lot, but he's just so perfect, right? This is, as Malcolm X says, this is the chickens coming home to roost, right? And we're going to have to deal with this. This is just not going to go away. And, and let me just say this very quickly. Uh, and I read where the police in France are responding very much like we see the uh, police here in the United States respond, you know, saying that we need to crack down on these protesters, that we need to show we need to show a force against these protesters. That's not going to solve the problem. That's pouring gasoline on a fire. Uh, and it's the same way, of course, that we see our police in the United States often respond. So uh, we need to deal with this. We need to uh, somehow uh, uh, manufacture a soft landing for the United States and for the collective West because we are in free fall and the ground's coming up quicker than you know what. Well, thank you for that film. And sorry, I don't remember you mentioning it recently. So. It's fresh to us. Okay. <laughs> it's a fresh story. But anyway, thank you for that. And thanks for uh, just kind of unpacking some of these stories this week. A very, it's a real rough week uh, here in D.C. and for people all around the world. Thank you for helping us unpack. Thank uh, I've been you, speaking Esther. to our media critic, John Jeter. Thank you so much for joining me, John. Thanks for having me, Esther. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, Poor People's Campaign leaders from more than 30 states met in D.C. June 19th through the 21st to highlight poverty as an American death sentence and to, quote, demand 
action to end murder by public policy, end quote. On June 20th, the Reverend William Barber and several campaigners spoke in front of the Supreme Court. For all that are here today, the media, can you name the top 10 causes of death in America? And without too much trouble, most Americans could likely come up with some of them. Cancer, heart disease, strokes, accidents. But it would come as a surprise to many to know that poverty is right up there and in fact higher than the things we just need like name. In fact, many ills that have inspired investigative committees, major policy investments, and sustained attention from the public and private sectors kill less people than poverty. Recently, a study has shown that cumulative poverty over many years is the fourth leading cause of death in this country. The fourth leading. Current poverty just this year is right being poor right now is seventh on that list. And it alone causes, watch this, ten times as many deaths as homicide. And yet every night you see news stories about homicide and every politician will run and claim they're going to address crime and making the country safe. They're going to make countries safe from those that would pull the trigger of a gun. But what about those who are pulling the trigger of public policy? Five times as many deaths as gun violence. I know we've talked a lot about police violence and gun violence and, and, and racist police killing black people, but you cannot raise that issue when poverty kills more black people than the racist cops ever kill. You cannot raise the gun violence issue, which ought to be raised. I'm on the front lines, I believe. But you can't raise that issue and say you're concerned about death and not look at the fact that poverty kills five times more people than gun violence. Two and a half times as many deaths as drug overdoses for opioids. And think about that. Five people died from vaping and we had a presidential level uh, uh, hearing. People always run, we're going to deal with opioids, but poverty kills two and a half times more than drug overdoses. Cumulative poverty lingers year after year, and cumulative poverty is associated with 60% more death than current poverty, putting only heart disease and cancer and smoking-related deaths above the number of people that are killed by poverty. But if this is true, why do we hear so much about crime rates and opioid epidemic? and gun violence, but so little from our elected leaders about poverty. Why is there no Surgeon General's warning on a low-wage job? The relationship of poverty to disease and death is well established. 
detailed reports by the World Health Organization, the World Bank, and our own government. But we as a people too often have become numb to the unnecessary and untold deaths that are normalized. As if to say poor folk are supposed to die and then preachers are supposed to stand over them and lie. And say God called him home when God didn't have a damn thing to do with it. God may welcome them home, but God didn't have nothing to do with killing them. Sadly, the United States is the leader among poverty, among rich countries of the world. We cannot claim exceptionalism and go around the world telling other folk what they need to do. As long as this is a reality, as of 2019, the United States had the worst poverty rate overall, 17.8%, and in children, 20.9% among the 25 wealthiest countries. And so it's time. It's past time. We've known it. We couldn't do it as much in public because of COVID, but now it's coming out time for real. And if you think we were protesting in 2018 from COVID and we went into COVID with poverty killing four times more than the fourth leading cause of death and we've seen our loved ones killed and murdered through policy during COVID, if you think we were allowed then, you ought to see the aftermath that's coming now. We are not alive to be quiet. We are not alive to go back in our shells and go back in our closets we are not alive to just take things as they are. We are together. We are black. We are white. We are brown. We are Asian. We are indigenous. We are young. We are old. We are of every party. We are gay. We are straight. We are Jewish. We are Muslim. We are Christian. We are Unitarian. We are people of faith, people not of faith. And not only aren't we going anywhere, we're going to get louder and louder and louder. We're going to link arms together and make the case for an economy that works for everybody. And we're not doing it not knowing what power we have. We, not, we have not only the power to be loud, we got the power to send some of y'all home. We got the power to determine who the president is. We got the, we're going to wake up this sleeping giant of 87 million poor and low wealth people in this country. Because if the United States is going to claim to be the beacon of democracy in a world and a nation committed to establishing justice and promoting the general welfare at home, it cannot be true that poverty is the fourth leading cause of death in the richest nation in the world. And we say, like Martin said, maybe in another country we wouldn't say anything, but you said on paper that you were about establishing justice. If you didn't mean it, you shouldn't have written it down. But since you did, we're going to hold you accountable. That's why poor and low-wealth people are fighting for our lives. Yes, sir. Clergy, we're fighting for our people's lives. Advocates, we are fighting for our lives. And today, we are calling on you to support the introduction of a third reconstruction. We've had two, but they didn't finish the job. One in the 1800s, one in the 1960s. We need a third reconstruction. We are outlining a third reconstruction resolution to ask you as, as leaders, as elected leaders, do you even have the resolve, just the, just the heart to fight for these matters? And we remind you what the scriptures say since you pray every morning when you open the legislative, the Congress. 
But the problem is you pray P-R-A-Y and then after that you pray P-R-E-Y on poor folk. Woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights and make women and children their prey. And so we are together. We're staying together. We're going to raise our voices. We're going to raise our votes. When necessary, we're going in the streets. If necessary, we'll fill up the jails. We don't have to do it violently, but we will do it victoriously. We don't have to be mean, but we're going to be a movement. We're going to stand up and not sit down. We were born for this time. We are the ancestors. We are the descendants of the ancestors that stood before us. They fought worse and won. We must fight in our time. And you know what? We're going to let everybody know. If you've been wondering when poor folk and black folk and brown folk and all different races of folk and folk from Appalachia to Alabama, from Carolina to the California, from Kansas to Kentucky, from farmers to fast food workers, if you've been wondering when they were going to get together, we are that movement. We are. Kimberly Burks, Beckley, West Virginia. I will not be silent to keep them comfortable anymore. My son, Quantez Burks, 37 years old, was put in jail on a misdemeanor charge. Little did he know he had 18 hours left in his life that he would see day again. My son was brutally beat by the correctional officers at the Southern Regional Jail. I am tired of the officers in blue covering up for one another. His case has been a cover up for a year and four months now. And I am not going to be silent anymore. I love my son. Whether you do or you don't, my son was 37 years old. He was a homeowner. He was a grandfather. He was a father. His daughter just graduated from uh, Ohio State University with the full four-year scholarship ride. He wasn't a bad person, but why did they take his life? Why did they put their hands on him? For no reason at all. They didn't know him. He didn't know them. He was in there on a misdemeanor charge, bondable. That's right. Bondable. And I will not remain quiet anymore. I want to see them answer, have an answer for what they're doing. Because we're poor, we're going to be washed away, swept under the rug, no. looked over. No. No. We're not having it anymore. No. And I ask you all to stand up for police brutality. It is not necessary in the morning. We're going back to the olden days. And, and it's over. Yes. yes. You're not alone. And we won't be silent anymore. And the poor people in West Virginia that are dying in those are black, they're white, they're everybody. It's, it's, but it's the poor, it's poverty. And the, and, and the believing that people don't have the resources to fight back. Yes. And poor people's campaign in West Virginia was the only group that really they came and pushing the Justice Department to do over at this mother. What's the other sister's name, the family? Uh, Latasha. I'm sorry, the Shrewsbury family. Shrewsbury family. The black family and the white, but they're not going to be silent and we can't anymore. Thank you, thank you. Come on. Marie, 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 Mariana. 
again, my son Max. All right, Max. Muy buenas tardes, hola mi gente, aquí estamos y no nos vamos. Mi nombre es Mariana Pineda, soy madre, maestra y mujer indígena, mujer poderosa. And we will not be erased. My name is Mari, I am an immigrant from Central America, and I am a proud indigenous woman. We are wet out, we are still here, we are still fighting. We will not be erased. At the age of four years old, I was forcibly removed from my country and brought to this country by my white American mother. She told me there were no indigenous people in Costa Rica. She said that it was a political no man's land. There was nobody here. It was just free, open territory. And then my German ancestors did some real dirty things in World War II. And then they took their hoarded wealth and they hid in Latin America like so many other Nazis in Argentina and Costa Rica. Did you know that there is a Nazi party of Costa Rica still active today? It ain't right. But we did everything right. We came here legally. I was naturalized. I have a green card. And I did everything right. I had perfect SAT and AT, uh, ACT scores. I got into every college except Harvard. I was waitlisted for Cordell. I have three degrees and six teacher certifications. And I am homeless. And my son and I have been homeless for a year and a half because in April 2020, I contracted COVID. And I was put in the hospital where there were 82 of us in the emergency room, packed in like sardines, where if I moved my elbow, I bumped the elbow of my neighbor beside me. And there were no Spanish language interpreters on the unit. So from my bed, I would call out to my brothers and sisters, Señor, por favor, ella te está tratando de ayudar. Por favor, dete vuelta. Tome el oxígeno, queremos ayudarte. Because they would just flip him over and restrain him and scream at him because he did not speak English. So in April 2020, we were packed in like sardines in the COVID unit. I had to wait 36 hours in the ER to get a bed upstairs in what had been an ambulatory surgery unit, which they had converted into COVID units by duct taping plexiglass between us. And every single person on that unit was black or brown or Latino. There was one white woman on the unit, and they moved her real quick, and they left the rest of us there. And we say in my country, afraid monos, to go fry monkeys, because we had no uh, disposable pull-ups. So you had to lay in bed and soil yourself. There was an oxygen shortage, so I had to be discharged at home without oxygen. And they told me that they could not provide transportation home from the hospital because it's very expensive. I was a public school teacher. I had good health insurance, I thought. I thought my union had my back. I was mistaken. Because when I was in the COVID unit, I was still posting brain pop videos in my Google Classroom. I was still attending faculty meetings with my camera off. I never got flowers, a card, a phone call from my district. And instead, I got a letter telling me that as of October, they would no longer be paying me, and instead, I would have to pay them $3,000 a month for COBRA to keep my health insurance benefits. 
Okay. That's why we can't be what? We lost our house. We've been in a shelter for a year and a half. My seven-year-old son has been diagnosed with hypertension, a sleep disorder, PTSD, anxiety, and depression because social services rather pay the shelter $7,000 a month than give us a $1,300 a month voucher to try to get safe, affordable, accessible housing. It ain't right, and we're fighting back. And we're lone evil. And my sister just said something that Matthew Desmond in his book talks about the billions of dollars that are, are there for poor and low wealth communities that aren't accessible because of the bureaucracy and they pay the lawyer rather than pay the people. The lawyer and others. This is why we can't be silent. And we can't be alone. And why America must hear these voices. And the Reverend William Barber and leaders from the Poor People's Campaign will have the last word on today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook, on Twitter, or on patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. I also link to all of my shows on my Instagram page, Esther underscore Averum. That's I, V like Victor, E-R-E-M like Mary. The music we played this hour included Black Man Know Yourself and Truth Don't Die by Femi Kuti. And let's start by Fela Kuti featuring Ginger Baker. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.